Welcome to Sweet Valley Diaries, the podcast where we only have one rule. No matter what the circumstances, no matter why you left, you have to call your dad to tell him whose house you ran away to. Book number 25, Nowhere to Run. Will Emily lose everything she loves? Hi. No, no, that was great. <laughs> Welcome to Sweet Valley Diaries. I am your host, Marissa Flaxbart, and with me today is a very special guest, Mr. Dan Gaspari. Hello. Hello there. Thank you for joining me. Happy to be here. So, Dan, uh, this show has a, um, a rich history of having a sort of incestuous series of guests mm-hmm. um, in the best possible way. And I think that you continue in that rich tradition. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, how exactly is a question that could probably be answered by um, the first question we always ask in the podcast, which is, uh, are you familiar at all with uh, Sweet Valley High? Were you before you read this book? I think I was aware of the books and probably sort of that in Babysitter's Club, but uh, not something I ever read. But uh, since uh, you are best friends with my wife, um, <laughs> I sort of got roped into this a little bit. And now I'm, I feel like I'm part of it. And I'm keeping up. And, and now I'm here today to talk about one of the books. Oh, yes. So your wife, uh, Mary Parker, mm-hmm. who famously was on the show shortly before you became engaged. Correct. And then uh, made a return appearance on the show uh, to, I believe, proclaim that, or at some point she was going to like Bruce Patman, a guy, like she was going to find a Bruce Patman and mm-hmm. she was going to um, like ruin his life by tricking him into marriage, something like that. Oh. But we determined that that was not what was happening okay. with you and Mary. So don't worry. Got it. <laughs> Um, I mean, we can get to this at the end, but like, I don't really think of you as a Bruce Patman type. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Although he seems to be uh, changed as of this book. A little bit reformed. It's weird. Every time yeah. Bruce Patman listeners will, will notice that Bruce Patman, just to have a little diversion right off the top, listeners will probably notice that Bruce Patman has not really figured very much into these recent books. So far in season three, kind of been a non-entity. But uh, yeah, yeah, he's about to return. Mm-hmm. Big um, time. Yeah, yeah. But that's for next episode. That's for the next episode. Um, well, how about we talk about the cover mm. of Nowhere to Run? Let's describe this for okay. our listeners. So we have uh, one of the Wakefield twins. I presume it's Elizabeth. Definitely. Comforting be. a uh, sad-looking girl, I presume to be Emily, and she's wearing a... I guess a fuchsia polo? Yeah. So Emily Meyer is someone that even listeners who read the books when they were growing up might not exactly remember. Um, this is one of those minor characters in the spotlight books where suddenly we focus in. That happens more and more as the series goes on, understandably. Mm. But we haven't had too many of those yet. Emily Meyer is the drummer for uh, something listeners will surely recognize, a band called... The Droids, the best va- uh, the best band in Sweet Valley, uh, California, California, and the best band at Sweet Valley High. I think yeah. they're described that mm-hmm. way sometimes, but oh, yeah. more widely, the best like teen band, the best rock band in town. Mm-hmm. And Emily is their like cool drummer. Um, something about Emily Meyer. Are we gonna say Meyer or Mayer? What do you think? I think. I think Meyer. I like Meyer. It's yeah. M A Y E R. Yeah. That's how I've always thought of her as Emily Meyer. Um, 
I actually think that for once, the artist here, the wonderful artist who I love very much, James Matthews, has depicted a young woman that actually looks like a teenager. Yes. <laughs> she looks kind of immature. She does not look like a rock band drummer no. in any way. No. Um, she has this, the polo that she's wearing does not really fit her. She does not appear to have, um, let's just say breasts to, sp- to speak of, uh, which it doesn't really come up in the book, I'm glad to say. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the person that is comforting her is Elizabeth Wakefield. And we can be sure of that because another thing that, uh, this book represents is, uh, yet another chapter in the... Um, Elizabeth helps out someone that she doesn't know anything about. No. <laughs> tradition. Correct. In fact, I would say that this book makes it pretty clear that Elizabeth doesn't know anything about Emily Meyer. Nothing at all. Um, but she is more than happy to get involved. Um, and she's once once Emily realizes this, she just sort of gr- grabs, grabs hold of, of the, the Wakefield family support line here. Exactly. Like, pretty literally. <laughs> it's like, the, who can I talk to? Well, okay, well, let's get into it, the story naturally here. Because mm-hmm. so we talked about y- your history with Sweet Valley. We talked about the cover. So now we'll talk about the book. Sounds good. So the book starts with Emily Meyer nowhere in sight, right? Because the first thing that's happening... Well, we have our, our B-plot, if you will, which is that the Wakefield grandparents are in town. Yeah! This is kind of a big deal. This is the first time we've ever heard, of, I think, of these grandparents. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you if, if they had appeared or even been mentioned. <laughs> they have definitely not appeared yet. I am not sure if we've heard them so much as mentioned... I think that they must have, they probably came up in passing. But this is Ned Wakefield's parents. Um, Ned Wakefield's parents who, boy, Jessica is really excited to see. And um, the entire book, uh, I was just waiting for there to be some sort of scheme behind all this enthusiasm. But I'm sadly misjudged. She just really loves her grandparents and hanging out with them. say it's very uncharacteristic. Now, Mm -hmm. the book tries to say that Jessica's excitement about something is characteristic of Jessica. Elizabeth says, like, oh, she's on Jessica standard time. She, all she cares about is the next big thing that's happening, and she just can't bide her time waiting for it. The next big thing that's happening is described on the first page of the book as the biggest family event in ages, a three-week visit from their grandparents. Indeed. Which, damn, that is a long visit. Yes, and you can tell that Alice and uh, uh, Alice is really enjoying this this visit. Yeah. So that is, I mean, let, we can go ahead and talk about it, the B plot here, uh, because I don't know. I think maybe the book starts with this because otherwise it would be like, who the hell is Emily Meyer? Right. M- Mayor. Mayor? I can't remember what I decided. Meyer. Meyer. (laughs) Um, Who the hell is Emily Meyer? Young readers might be thinking if they open the book and start, oh, yeah, yeah, the droids, okay, yeah, yeah, all right. But instead, we enter with the Wakefields. Grandma and Grandpa are coming, and Jessica is beside herself. But yeah, this weird thing unfolds with Alice. Right. Well, it's... I'm not sure if they just needed to introduce some sort of conflict, because it seems... Uh, very localized to the fact that her in-laws are in town for three straight weeks. Yeah, which... I th- I kind of wish that the book had just, like, gone out and, s- and made it so that Alice and, like, Mrs. Grandma Wakefield 
were had this, like bad blood or something. Ooh. There was some sort of beef. But they really don't. The book like bends over backwards to make it seem as if they all get along really well. And actually, Alice really loves the Wakefields. And but it's just that it's so dumb. It actually made me mad. I, I don't know how you felt. Well, it's it it feels forced and and that. You know they they do seem to sort of monopolize the the kids' times, and so it's and it may, and again every single time they talk about it, they're like this is perfectly reasonable because they're visiting for a short time and the kids haven't seen them in a while. Right. So listeners, if you will imagine, you know, highly anticipated grandparent visit, they're going to be there for three weeks, and at the pretty pretty much at the beginning, um, oh, there's this interesting sort of subtextual moment. Let me find it here. It's in chapter two. Grandpa Wakefield, this is like their first meal at the Wakefield house, and Alice has cooked it. And Grandpa Wakefield says, I don't know how you do it, Alice, Grandpa Wakefield said appreciatively, his dark eyes twinkling as he surveyed the food spread out on the dining room table. How you manage to work full time and still prepare a dinner like this is beyond me. The world has changed, Bob, Grandma Wakefield teased him as the family sat down at the table. I could read, go on and read from there, but I just thought it, Grandma and Grandpa Wakefield had this, like, like kind of weirdly conservative... Mm-hmm. Weirdly is not the word. It's just that it's, it's, like, subtly conservative streak. Did you notice that? Did you pick up on that? A little bit, yeah. Very... Uh... Th- this line doesn't really represent that. This line makes it seem like Grandma Wakefield is saying, like, come on, Grandpa Wakefield, things have changed, like... But Grandpa Wakefield is complimenting Alice. Anyway, this all seems to get into Alice's head. Like, she's thinking, oh my god, am I a bad mother because I work so much? Right? This right. Means, that's like her I think beef. that's essentially the, the initial lead-in to this, this sort of... Her, her having all these second thoughts, wondering about her being a bad mom because she's too career-focused yeah. and stuff like that. And I will grant the book that that is a, a real thing that I'm sure, like, most mothers, working mothers, probably go through. Hmm. There's just this element of, like... She's keeps on like scheming to take extra time off of work. She she takes an entire day off work at one point as yeah. like a last ditch effort. The first thing she does is she gets off work early. She goes to the grocery store and buys six of the finest steaks she could find. And she just comes home and announces that she's going to cook them the steak dinner without giving them any warning. No, no, she and that would be Fine, except she knows the grandparents are in town. They're, Ned keeps saying they're in town for three weeks. They, we never see them. They live far away. We haven't even told the listeners yet. They live in... Uh, oh, Michigan. Michigan. Which is weird that they live in... Yeah, the Wakefields live in California, but they're... Yeah, the grandparents live in Michigan. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, so they only see them like once a year. And the twins are like, oh, I kind of wish Grandma and Grandpa were here all the time. But secretly, I know that it's more precious to only see them once a year. Of course. And um, they're going to take them to the Hampshire Place Mall. Did you know that? The new mall, which is, yeah. Uh, it's, I don't know if they've been to that. That's. I don't think we've ever even heard of it. different from the other mall with Lizette's and the other stores, presumably. <laughs> right. Oh, you're just like warming my heart oh, right I've now. Been, I've been doing some research. <laughs> Um, I do. I I do want to point the. They have Grandma Wakefield is in a PhD program for history, which seems a little odd that she's going for a PhD. I don't know. Yeah, it's, like she could be going back to school 
to get I don't know Leah what exactly is she's, she gonna she's do? going to be the the oldest uh, here it is right here yeah, yeah she's going to be the uh, the oldest student in the PhD program in American history at University of Michigan which yeah. is I mean it's cool but it's also it's like are she really going for a doctorate yeah she's gonna be professor grandma the <laughs> because professor she loves history that much yeah she really loves history um and it at one point, Grandma Wakefield says, "We'll get we'll get back around to this when it comes out." But at oh, one yes. point, um, Grandma Wakefield said, "You know what? We'll come, we'll we'll say it when it comes up. How about that?" Sounds good. Hampshire Place, though, is a, that's something where I thought that was where the other shoe was going to drop. That all Jessica really cares about, right? Is that Grandma promised to buy them each an entire outfit? Yes, that's. I thought it was going to tie in with that. I was just waiting for Jessica to Jessica to like suggest some sort of over the top gift for her, right? Um, and introduce some conflict there, but it never came about. Yeah, it never so. really does. Instead, the it. So Alice, I, like as I was saying, I'll grant the book that Alice's uh, upset is like understandable like the kind of thing that like the kind of inner conflict that any working mother would have but the timing of it is just like makes me roll my eyes because like of course the kid the girls are spending a lot of time with the grandparents the grandparents are only in town for three weeks so this time when she comes home and she's gonna cook the steak dinner though it it brings up an important detail chinese food chinese food yeah which of course makes um uh, Ned, Papa, yeah, sorry, Papa Wakefield. <laughs> Ned, Ned is is cannot eat Chinese food, so uh, the twins are very excited because they can go to somewhere nice with the the grandparents. They haven't been out for Chinese food in six months. Oh my god! Uh, it made me think, like in the eighties, was Chinese food like a really big deal? Uh, I think I, maybe more so than now. I don't know. Possibly, certainly the. The level of popularity in terms of takeout, it's ubiquity, yeah. probably hit its apex in, in the 80s. Now we have, like, Thai food and yeah, other things that other are things. super, you know, Sushi. across all of, over yeah. the U.S. So Chinese food probably had its heyday in the well, 80s. Well, Jessica and Elizabeth are really excited that Grandma and Grandpa are taking them out to this new Chinese food restaurant. But I, the book backpedals a little bit because, you know, we on Sweet Valley Diaries have given the book a lot of shit for making Ned Wickfield allergic to oh, Chinese yes. food. Oh, yes. No longer allergic. Just sickened by it. Um, in fact, at one point, uh, we have Jessica telling... When Jessica is explaining uh, to her mother that, like, no... The whole family can't go out to China to dinner, and no, we can't change the restaurant we're going to. Jessica says, "Mom, Dad doesn't like Chinese food. Remember, he <laughs> says it makes him sick." So I like he says it makes him sick. Seems like actually a little bit more realistic than he's just not into it, yeah. which is fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so. But yeah, perhaps we should get on to <laughs> the, the listeners A-plot. are like, "What about Emily Meyer?" Let's let's so so we she's the drummer for the droids. She's drummer. And essentially, we'll say it's a real Cinderella story, and not we're talking about the 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 ending, the beginning with the evil stepmother. Yes. Oh my gosh, I completely agree. The this book brought back like the character of the wicked stepmother in a way that we haven't seen since fairy tales. Indeed, she's so bad. So her father has remarried a woman named Karen. Uh, and she uh, essentially seems to be difficult f- for Emily to be around. She comes from, a, I think, a, a, a well-to-do family. Yeah, so she's this... an only child with, of wealthy parents. Right. And 
and now she has had a child, uh, a baby named. Uh, let me just double check the spelling and pronunciation. No, I can on this. tell you right now. The baby's name is Carrie with a K. So this speaks volumes. I mean, partly it makes me feel like the writer of this book was really lazy, but I think actually there. there I mean, there's a not very subtle symmetry here, right? It says a lot about both Karen, the stepmother, mm-hmm. and Emily Meyer's father who has married Karen, that both of them together have agreed that it's okay for their baby daughter's name to be Carrie, K-A-R-R-I-E, which short for Karen, right? Right. Yes. It is definitely just a, yeah, an alliterative pet name. Yeah. Not that different from Karen. It's going to be confusing around the house when um, Carrie is a little bit older and people start shouting for her and nobody knows whether they're talking about Karen, Karen or Carrie. Carrie. And Emily. And Emily. And Ronald, I think, is yeah. her dad's name. They, they, or Mr. Meyer, as the book seems to primarily use, which yeah. makes me always wonder, what's his name again? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't know. What, Ronald, I just thought of Ronald McDonald. So, sure. Because it's not Ron, it's Ronald. Yeah. Sorry, any Ronalds out there. Uh, that's what your name makes me think of. I'm sure you're used to it. Um, yeah, so Emily, at the very beginning of the book, is just kind of complaining to Dana, who um, is the lead singer for Correct. the droids, about how terrible it is. And Dana's like, oh, having a baby at home would be so cute. And and Emily just keeps pushing back at how it's totally upended her life, and she has to completely reorganize her life around Carrie, and when Carrie's asleep, and when Carrie's awake, and Carrie, right. Carrie, Carrie. So, but, yeah, so the main issue is that uh, Emily wants to practice the drums, but baby Carrie needs to be sleeping, which means there's only a very limited window of time for her to practice. Right. But then whenever she does practice, Karen runs downstairs and yells at her because the baby is asleep again for some yeah. reason. So, And even before we get a glimpse into that, so we learn a few things about Emily. We learn that, well, just first of all, just about her initial, her immediate problem she actually loves, she loves Carrie. She's like, who couldn't love Carrie? She's eight months old now. She's so cute. And she has some really, she has some really sweet moments, actually, with this baby where she just looks down at her baby sister and she just, you know, like, oh, she's so beautiful. And oh, I never want anything to happen to you. Like, the book establishes, even despite Emily's initial protestations about the baby, she loves the baby. It's just that what the baby represents in her life is this, like, new world order and Karen, uh, Emily is sure, hates her. And from all we can see, it seems like that might be true. Um, but at the very least, Emily is afraid that Karen is going to send her off to boarding school. Right. That is the the primary threat that is, uh, I don't think, ever actually brought up but is always implied at is that she she can't go against Karen too far because she'll be sent away. Yeah, and Karen has I will say it's not just a figment of Emily's right. imagination, although it doesn't really ever come up. She doesn't outright say it, but it definitely seems to be implied. There there's, are, there's some brochures she yeah. has ordered. Right. So I, I yeah, I feel like some of these yeah, some of these conversations are are you know, off stage for yeah. this for this book. So presumably she's actually made the threat at some point. And yeah. so Emily Emily is terrified of being sent away from her friends and, and everything in Sweet Valley. Yeah, the evil stepmother is going to send her away from her beloved father and her beloved kingdom. Exactly. Um, because Emily loves Sweet Valley. Um, Emily also is starting to love a boy. Mm-hmm, that's right. A Dan. Yeah. <laughs> 
I don't know if that was an intentional choice by you or just I by chance. I wish I could say that it was, but <laughs> did you relate to Dan Scott as character? I, I like Dan, and he seemed like a, a nice guy. So uh, we've never heard of Dan Scott, I don't think, no, before but this. he's the he's the bass player for the droids. So Oh, that's what he and does. And I, I did make an immediate note saying, you should be careful, Emily. Uh, interband relationships can, can go sour. And uh, and if you truly are the the best band in Sweet Valley, mm. you know things could get a little uh, complicated. Dan Scott, let's see what we have to say about Dan Scott. This is Emily thinking about how hard it would be to be forced away from her beloved hometown. Leaving Sweet Valley was simply out of the question, especially since Dan Scott had come into the picture. It wasn't that anything had exactly happened between Emily and Dan; they were just friends, really good friends. He was the bass guitar player for the droids, and lately he and Emily had been practicing together a lot and talking about all sorts of things, such as music and the future. They were growing close. So that's uh, Dan and Emily. It's sweet. It's extremely sweet, and um, yes, you're you're definitely um, rooting for those two. Yeah, Uh, but then Emily has this other... Really crazy backstory detail. Right. So she has told everyone that her mother died when she was young, but in fact she has run off and sort of, uh, sort of walked out on the family and only kept slightly in touch with Emily and, yeah. has, and more or less has not been in communication with her for at least a few, like a few years, I yeah. think. Yeah. So yeah, Emily's mom left the family, as you said, when they were... When Emily was a little girl, and Emily's kind of like, what kind of mother would do that? Uh, she and her father always had a really close relationship. This is also very fairy tale, right? Like, but my father and I were really close. He's this, you know, I'm his most beloved person. And now here's this other woman entering the picture. And she's jealous of me, the mm-hmm. beloved daughter, yep. and wants to assert her authority. And uh, then she brings her own baby into the world. And then it's literally like she's like a witch. I mean, not literally, but it is figuratively like she's a witch. All the interactions uh, seem to involve Karen screaming at Emily um, for one reason or another. It hardly seems like they talk that much. At one point, she cries. Oh, yes. Uh, Karen cries. Emily doesn't cry, but Karen is like brings her own self to tears. Also, Karen uh, at one point really turns on the charm sometimes and and like emily's like as soon as karen starts calling me m i know that she's trying to get on my good side uh and whenever she asks emily to babysit right but it's like as soon as emily has even the slightest pushback karen is like you don't give a shit about what i do for this family it's hard having a baby and you're just an ungrateful spoiled brat she really like goes really deep really fast right and and um Ron Meyer doesn't uh, really. He's like, oh yeah, you should. She's having a tough time, so he's he's definitely not a sympathetic ear for Emily in any way. Well, this is really what I mean when I say that she has this like magical power mm-hmm. because the power that she seems to have is that she has cast a spell on Emily's dad, so that Emily's dad only believes what Karen t- Karen's side of the story and is unwilling to hear anything negative Emily has to say, and Emily tries not to talk shit about Karen, but sometimes it's like, Dad, you don't understand what's happening. Right. I got really worked up at certain points reading this book. How did you feel? It's it's definitely felt 
um yeah like i said it was like oh she's a wicked stepmother and and yeah, i was like this, this is pretty over the top very melodramatic but it, you know i it, guess that's it was a toss-up at certain points for me between wanting to just like stop reading and just like throw the book away or like i have to keep reading to let this resolve because it's just like really so frustrating to have this sort of unjust accusation on right. karen's part and and i was wondering if they were going to yeah, try and, and, and sort of give some nuance to Karen at some point. Like, oh, she, you know, she's having this real tough time because of some reason. But I mean, it's it's just she's just being so mean to Emily. Yeah. And, and so she, she institutes these curfews that yeah. seem like almost specifically... To, uh, designed to prevent her from practicing with the droids. Right. She's, she says that Karen has to be home by 10, but the rehearsals go later. Right. Sorry, I said Karen. Emily has yeah. to be home by 10. And um, I think the closest thing the book does to giving nuance to Karen is that Emily is told multiple times and takes to heart the fact that it is really challenging and stressful to have a newborn baby. Right. And all these adjustments that Karen's going through are really challenging, but Emily makes the excellent point as the book wanes on that, like, hey, all that stuff's happening to me, too. Like, I have a new family dynamic. There's a new baby in my house. That's my sister. Like, this is also hard on me. Nobody gives a shit how I feel. Yeah. She doesn't use this language, but that's... That's, that's essentially what's yeah. with the response. The spirit of the, of the reaction. So, plot-wise, one of the way that Emily and Elizabeth intersect is... Uh, Emily walks into the office of the Oracle uh, asking to help on the paper because Karen has told her to do that as a new hobby because it's uh, more of a proper thing to do or something like yeah, that. Yeah, writing is so much more intellectual than music. Of course. And Emily is just like, if Karen wants me to do it, I guess I should do it because otherwise she's going to send me away. Right. Um, and Elizabeth is very like... Emily Meyer, like, isn't she a drummer? Like, she's not a writer. Why does she want to write? But she's willing to go along with it. But I just thought it was kind of funny that she... Uh, um, it was a convenient way yeah. for her to be forced into contact with, yeah. with Elizabeth. Mr. Collins asks Elizabeth right. to help Emily, like, prepare her, like, audition piece. Like, something that she's going to write for the Oracle to be on the editorial staff. And so then they start to talk. Yes. And, and so... But pretty soon, uh, the re whole reason she's doing this becomes uh, apparent. I think she opens up to Elizabeth pretty quickly about yeah. all of this. Well, one of the things that she tells Elizabeth fairly quickly is the secret about her mother. Right. Which I was like, whoa, okay, I guess you really trust her. I mean, she's trustworthy, don't they, get me wrong, they, but they, dang. They, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to find the passage where she's just like, oh, she's just so perfect and so approachable. And, I, you know, you can tell her anything, I guess. Uh, it, they definitely make her out to be uh, Miss Perfect, kind of. There is a part in Chapter 6 where Emily says, let's see where we should start. It felt strange to Emily to have confided in Elizabeth Wakefield. Up until a week ago, Elizabeth had been no more than a casual acquaintance, the sort of girl Emily wished she knew better, but never felt entirely comfortable with. She had always thought of Elizabeth as a girl who had everything, good looks, a great sense of humor, outstanding grades, and a wonderful family. For those reasons, Emily could never have imagined dumping her own problems on Elizabeth. It was if all the qualities that made Elizabeth so admirable also made her seem unapproachable. So yeah, 
what can I say, Elizabeth problems, you know? I can relate. Right. And <laughs> and I think um, it, it would make more sense for her to approach her her bandmates probably for some emotional support, but she they literally kind of explain that away and they say, well, the the, the droids are also laid back and um, and then she, they even have her sit rem- remembering when she spoke to Dana and yeah. she could tell that Dana was probably not super keen on um, uh, you know getting like getting too too serious. They they, yeah. they they sort of say like, oh well, the droids are all laid back people. They don't want. They want no drama, basically. Yeah. Also, Emily is really worried about the secret about her mother being um, get, getting out, right. and it's specifically to her bandmates, and even more specifically to Dan Scott, because she's like, if a few things, like if they knew that I was lying to them, I, that would look bad. If they, I mean, and it would, because that is a weird big lie. Um, but I guess you start with something like that when you're a kid, and you kind of just. Yeah, you know, she's if, not in her life in any way, so she's gone. Yeah, I mean, Emily even says, like, she's essentially dead to me, so... Ouch, uh, but yeah. 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 And she says it in, like, her inner monologue, but yeah, ouch indeed. Um, and then she's also like, they wouldn't want to be friends with me if they knew what a shitty home life I have, which is so sad. Yeah, it's it's kind of, it's such an awful thing to think, and, and of course... Uh, once the secret's out, they don't care in any way, but... Yeah, well, speaking of, of that secret getting out, so, you know, Dan calls the house, like, they arrange a time, and it's like, as soon as they arrange a date to, to like, meet up... They specifically pick a time when Karen is taking Carrie to the doctor, so she won't be in the house, they won't bother anyone, and Emily can show Dan her new symbols. Yeah, so Dan comes over, and um, Karen flips out. Can I read yes. this scene? Because oh, yes. this is actually kind of a climax of the book. Oh, yes. Uh, so not the climax, but it's, a it's climax. It's the major turning point. And she she arrives uh, home early, earlier than Emily was expecting. And, of course, they're busy playing drums in the basement to hear her enter. And when she does, she, unsurprisingly, blows up at them. I'm going to read a kind of a long passage here, okay? So we'll have the scene. She was so engrossed in the music that she didn't hear the garage door open upstairs or the door slam as Karen came in. She didn't even hear little Carrie crying. The next thing she knew, Karen was downstairs, the sobbing baby in her arms. Karen's pretty face was contorted with rage as she stared first at Emily and then at Dan. I thought I made myself clear yesterday, Emily, she seethed, trying her best to quiet Carrie. Did I or didn't I tell you that there is to be no more noise in this house? Emily felt the color draining from her face. Not in front of Dan, she thought desperately. Please, Karen, don't humiliate me this way. But Karen was just getting started. I'm afraid you haven't introduced me to your friend, she said acidly, turning to look at Dan. The way she said friend sounded so awful that Emily cringed. I'm Dan Scott, Dan managed. I think maybe I'd better be going now. Yes, Karen said furiously. I think maybe you'd better... Emily, she added, her face burning. Since when do you invite boys over without asking my permission? Since when do you invite boys into the house when no one else is home? Emily felt sick. I, uh... You may not care how it looks to other people, Karen went on, but once again, young lady, you don't just have yourself to think of anymore. 
Emily felt angry tears stinging her eyes. We weren't doing anything wrong, Karen, she protested. You can see for yourself. I was just showing Dan my new symbols. I wasn't... Don't tell me what you were or weren't doing, Karen fumed. I've warned your father a million times, she added. Why do you think I set curfews for you? Don't you understand it's just to keep this sort of thing from happening? Believe me, she added, her voice rising. I know what kind of home you were raised in, Emily. I know your own mother didn't care about things like curfews before she walked out on your father. But I, her voice dropped, am not going to permit you to turn out like your mother. Among other things, I simply will not have my baby grow up in a house with a, a tramp. At the mention of her mother, Emily had frozen. She barely heard the words that followed. All she knew was that her secret had been given away. Dan knew now that she was a liar, that her mother was still alive. And worse, he knew what people thought of her mother. Tramp. That was the word Karen had used. And that was the word Emily had heard from time to time when she was a little girl. And Dan also knew how little her stepmother thought of her, how horribly she treated her. Well, it didn't matter anymore. Nothing mattered anymore. Dan knew everything there was to know, and all Emily wanted was for him to leave the house as soon as possible. She never wanted to see him again, now that he knew what she really was, what her mother was. I think I'd better leave, Dan repeated. Karen had burst into tears, and little Carrie was crying too. Emily was too numb to cry. She barely looked at Dan as he left. She didn't ever want to look at him in the eyes again, she realized. She didn't think she could bear it. Not after what he'd just heard. Ooh. Ooh, drama. It's, oh, it's pretty it's brutal. Ups- upsetting. I mean, I was like aghast when she said the thing about the mother. Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> I mean, it's it's so over the top. It's just Beyond awful. the veil. It's crazy. So, um, yeah, it's it just seems like so much to, to throw, like, just to blow up on her at that level. Well, and then. In front of someone else yeah. that supposedly she's thinking of you know, her family's reputation, but then... So many things at play here, too. We have, um... There's also another scene, again, where Emily practices her drums at a time when it has been established that Carrie is awake during these hours, so she's allowed to practice during these hours. But that doesn't matter. (laughs) You know, because Karen comes down and she's raging, like, I just got her to go to sleep. Like, how dare you? And and Emily points out, like, but we have rules. This is another thing. It's like, Karen is making up this rule about having boys in the house. There's no rule. Right. That has never come up. Yeah, Emily's not breaking a rule. Karen is changing the rules and making them up as she goes along. Right. And then Emily's getting in really bad trouble for it and getting totally insulted in a really cruel way. Yeah. But I think that even more maddening than this is when Emily brings this to her father. And there's a lot. Emily thinks all the time in the in the book. There's no point in complaining about Karen to my dad. He's not right. listening. And I mean, yeah, they essentially, she says that. She eventually does bring, you know, her complaints to him. And he always just seems to say, oh, well, your mother's having a difficult time. You should really just follow the rules and stop troubling her. Yeah, it's hard for her. It's um, and And when he says... When she finally is like, but did she tell you what she said about my mother? He, like, explodes. He, like, slams his glass on the table. Yep. He's like, I don't want to hear another word. He's he's not even trying to listen. He's so angry that he's not even, like, countenancing that there might be two sides to the story. Yeah, this is t- Yeah, he's not, he's not a sympathetic ear. Um, Karen, Karen is just, you know, beyond the pale in terms of, of wicked stepmother. Yeah. And so she, the only person she has left to turn to is Elizabeth Wakefield. Yeah. And I guess like the Wakefield family in general. So after this whole blow up, Emily calls Elizabeth and ends up going over to 
uh, the Wakefield house. Um, this is a, a point where, like, the family is all around the dinner table, right? It's right. this time. Mm-hmm. And Grandma Wakefield, just upon hearing that um, Elizabeth's friend needs to come over... Well, first of all, Elizabeth is like, Emily Meyer is going to come over. And yeah. Ned Wakefield is like, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> Which I like that detail, because it reminds us, like, yeah, Emily and Elizabeth don't know each other nope. before this. And and Reader, you didn't know anything about <laughs> or about Emily before this book either. Yeah, she's just visiting for dinner, just yeah. randomly. Um, but of course, uh, and she she gushes to the entire Wakefield family what's just happened, basically. Yeah, Emily does. But before Emily does, oh. <laughs> um, it, when Elizabeth just says that the gra- that um, that her friend is coming over, the grandma says, it's terrible what's happened to the American family. Huh. <laughs> there's another one, like, there's another line for the grandparents there. You're like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's grandma's, like, instant assessment. Like, oh, problems at home? That didn't happen in my day. Right. The American family is falling apart at the seams. Back in my day, we all just suppressed our problems and didn't confide in our little friends. Mm-hmm. That's not what she says. But, I mean, it's not like people didn't have family problems before 1984. Right. Um, so... Uh, but Emily does come over, and that's when, like, she does, con- like you said, she tells everybody, and she wants to stay there, but Ned is like, there's one condition, you can stay here tonight. Like, she's hoping, like, she's going to move in with the Wakefields or something, I don't know. In her, yeah, in the back of yeah. her head. She yeah. just needs to get away from everything. Yeah, but Ned says she has to call home and tell her father where she uh, is. Yeah. Which seems reasonable enough, I guess, and that yeah. she's just gone off without telling anybody. Yeah. So... As soon as she calls home, basically her dad guilts her into coming home right away. He threatens to sell her drums. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is, seems to, a little to nasty. Out, to yeah. put them out in the rain. Right, yeah. it's It seems, it's a little drastic to go from, yeah. He's, he blows up at her, and she leaves the house to stay to friends, and then when she calls to say, I'm just going to stay over, he's, she's like, well, I'm going to put your drums in the yeah, rain. Yeah, she says, Daddy, I'm not coming home, you know, and he's like... To hell you're not, you yeah. know, I'm putting your <laughs> drums outside. But weirdly then, like, the next beat for Emily is that she, like, has a long talk that we don't get to see. Of course. <laughs> and she decides that she is going to sell her drums. Right. So they, she's, she's accepted that she has the wicked stepmother. She's lost. But she the... doesn't want, and she's lost Dan, And but she doesn't want to be sent away from Sweet Valley. So the, the boarding school threat is is enough that she's going to play along and just try and deal get over like deal with the the bad family you know like situation at home so she's going to sell her drums work on the newspaper and just sort of keep her head down so for there, now yeah and th- there's a moment like the next time she's seeing Dan it, she's decided to sell her drums and she's going to quit the droids and um he comes up to her very sympathetic he's like empathetic even he's like I-, I really want to talk about what happened like that was awful and this i don't know if you could hear my voice as a listener to the show in at this point in the book just like yelling at emily like just tell him what's wrong like you it's like she's she is pretend- spending all of her energy putting up this facade that everything's cool and it's no big deal mm-hmm. when like they're on the same page if she just told him how she felt it, they could have each other's support but instead he thinks that she doesn't like he's worried i mean he notices that she's ask, acting weird but on the surface he's like okay i guess she doesn't really care that much 
And then she's already sure that he hates her now, or he knows she's a liar, so he could never care about her. Yeah. So, so Dan's on the sidelines wondering, oh, I wonder what's wrong with Emily. But yeah, yeah, she doesn't confide in him, which sucks. So. And Emily puts an ad in the Oracle mm-hmm. about selling her drums for two hundred dollars. Which yeah is even even back then would be like oh, is not very much money for a, a nice what is probably a brand new drum set. It's, I mean, and they make it clear that, like, the drums are worth way more than that. Right. Although, I did kind of think, like, well, sure, but it's like the high school newspaper. Like, how many kids the high school just have two, even $200 kicking around? This high school has uh, got a lot of high rollers That's with their Porsches. I mean, what if Bruce Patman had bought the drums? Oh, like, that'd be uh, terrible. Just for my music room. Like, like, how hard can it be to play the drums? <laughs> Um, that's the old Bruce, though. Right. Anyway, uh, so, every, Elizabeth and Dan, like, hatch a little plan. That's really Dan's plan. Yeah. But he's, he's, they're going to buy the drums and, uh, sort of hold on to them. Yeah. Uh, because they know once they, once Elizabeth hears about this ad, she reaches out to Dan and they both agree that she's being weird and she's, you know, it's like she's going to regret this. She yeah. doesn't actually not want to be the, a drummer. So right. that will like will they essentially the scheme is to basically just buy the drums and hold on to them until things blow over. Yeah. And it's really interesting because I think even uh, Ron, her father, finds out she's selling them. And then he has like a little chat was like, oh, you're going to regret this if you sell them, which seems completely you know he just threatened to put them out in the rain yeah and and she's made it clear that she won't be able to practice with the band if she has these curfews so but this is where it's so weird that we weren't shown the conversation but it's because because the sub now we're just like having to go on the subtext of this follow-up conversation right you know i kind of assumed that emily had been forced to quit the droids and she'd you know been forced to sell her drums after this difficult conversation with her mom and stepmom or sorry her father and stepmother but then what like when we hear the aftermath and the dad's all shocked that she's selling her drums the dad says something to her also like um did you talk with the band about making an arrangement so that you can still honor your curfew and have rehearsals and she didn't talk to them about it no so, so it, it sounds like like they're not even really trying to put the ultimatum on emily that she has to quit right they're just making up this curfew and emily is kind of like well fuck it then you know <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to know what the scheduling conflict is and all that. So, yeah. Yes, it seems like a very reverse sort of, yeah, it's it doesn't seem to really match up with all the other conversations with her father and this whatever this big conversation was I guess following her coming home from the Wakefields. The one thing we can grant is that here's a glimpse that Emily is a little bit in her feelings and overreacting based on that, not just being forced into everything. Right. But also that the rules are constantly changing on her. So it's like even when she has bent over backwards and like gone way too far to just in pursuit of pleasing them, even then the dad is like, that was a mistake. You shouldn't have done that. Right. It's like, give me a fucking break, dad. Like, I, like, I wish she'd blown up at them a little bit, but she doesn't. She's like icily cool. She's like numb. Yeah. The book talks about her being numb several times. Exactly. Uh, she should get that checked out. And and so she commits to just, uh, she's going to babysit whenever Karen asks, which seems to be all the time. Yeah, and there's that weird moment where Karen is like, can you cook dinner too? 
And really, again, yeah. back to the Wicked Stepmother thing. Over the she's, top. she's a total Cinderella. Can you cook dinner, too? And when Emily stands up for herself and says, it's kind of hard to do both of those things, like watching Carrie and cooking dinner. And Karen is like, ah, but you don't care at all, yeah. do you? You don't understand how hard it is. Yeah. And then, yeah, so she's just super nasty. And then she points out, oh, well, also this doll that you gave Carrie has this weird bead that's loose. And... Karen just like snatches oh it out God. of her hands. It's like, what are you talking about? She's like, so yeah, Karen brings this doll home and she's like, don't worry, Carrie. We won't let Emily take your toy away. Oh my God. <laughs> Literally is what she says. It, yep. And, and Emily's like watching Carrie play with this doll and she's like, this bead is already coming loose. I just told you that bead looked loose. But Karen's like on her high horse talking about some bullshit. Now she oh so they she's on the phone with her mother. Oh right. Which they 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 don't you know go into, but they clearly imply that her relationship with her mother sounds awful. Oh yeah, she, Emily says like oh I I would sure would hate to you know sp- spend some time with, with these two. two. Yeah. yeah, that actually I thought was a really delicious little detail mm-hmm. because you know psychologically you could understand how someone with a really strained relationship with their own mother would then turn around and be kind of a shitty mother to her stepdaughter. I mean, hopefully not, but in this case she but is being happens, very shitty. Right? Yeah. And, of course, while she's distracted on the phone, Carrie decides to go for that bead and swallows it. Swallows it. it. Uh, Except it apparently is a really big bead that a baby cannot swallow, so she starts choking. Yeah, and this is so good. Um, Did you mark that part? You want to read it? Yeah, let's see. Carrie, Carrie, her mother screamed, grabbing the baby and shaking her. Emily could hear Karen's mother's voice, alarmed and high-pitched, calling something from the receiver dangling from the coffee table. She's choking, Emily hollered, jumping to her feet. It was apparent to Emily that Karen had no idea what to do, and unless someone did something right away, Carrie was going to choke to death right before their eyes. Give her to me, Emily said, grabbing Karen by the shoulders and turning around. But by this point, Karen was hysterical. She was hanging on to her baby with all her strength. Unless Emily could get Carrie out of her arms, the baby was going to suffocate. Emily didn't even stop to think. She had read somewhere that the best thing to do when someone was hysterical was to slap him or her. And that was exactly what Emily did. She slapped her stepmother as hard as she could right across her face. Then she took advantage of Karen's momentary shock to snatch Carrie out of her arms. Uh, I'm just gonna... And then she performs uh, a baby Heimlich maneuver, which uh, she says, "Uh, I've done this, you can use this on small children. I don't know if a... Relatively newborn infant, you should use the exact same technique like on the sternum. Old. Okay, there's a special baby Heimlich, I guess she does. I don't know. Uh, yeah, she she's able to you know, use her training and save baby Carrie. She saved Carrie's life. Then Dad walks home, walks in the door, like Very the worst moment. Dramatically, Karen's screaming and crying. The baby is crying. You know, just getting her lungs, her air back in her lungs, and the dad is like, "What have you done this time?" Yeah, like. Get out of here. Yep. Like, go upstairs. Yes. I don't want to hear anything yeah, from you. Because and then when she tries to protest. Yeah, well, then- K- Karen Karen doesn't say a thing about this. She's she's crying over the baby, so doesn't really actually tell him what anything. happens. And Emily says, you know, fine, and just, like, leaves, essentially. Yeah. yeah, and the dad's like, get out of here. Get out of here. And it's just like, oh, my, holy Christ. Um, I love it, though, that she gets to slap Karen. Oh, it feels good. And yeah. you're like, oh, and, and she saves the day. And you're like, yeah, but, 
of course, she doesn't get any credit for actually saving the baby, at least, you know, at this point, because yeah. the dad is just blown up at her. So Right. So she, she runs off to the Wakefields Runs off the Wakefields after a brief stop at the Box Tree Cafe, which... I, has that ever shown up yeah, in the book? It has. Okay. I was like, we don't it's... talk about it much, but the Boxster Cafe is one of these places that right. is just like, there. Didn't want to stop at the Dairy Burger? Yeah, right? For some comfort food? Yeah, she stops at the Boxster Cafe. She has, the, and she's hatched this plan. She's going to call her mom, or she's going to go to Chicago. She's got these $200 right. from selling the drums. She's going to go to Chicago and, and like show up at her mom's door. Right. So she's, first she's going to do a quick stop at the Wakefields. Yeah. Or she calls the Wakefields and <laughs> Elizabeth is going to go pick her up. But Alice is like, oh, well, on your way home, can you stop by the grocery store and get, get some, some milk? milk? This will be very convenient for um, getting some details for the next <laughs> yeah. book story. When, when I read that line, I was like, oh, why is the book needing her to do that? I couldn't remember. Like, are they going to run into Emily's parents there or and like like what's gonna happen but no it's just so that they can meet someone we'll get to it in a second we'll, we'll fill you all in in a moment but uh anyway of course elizabeth brings emily home to the wakefields and then there's an interesting moment between emily and grandma wakefield yes so emily yeah emily sort of is is hatching her plan and at this point Al, uh, yeah, sorry, uh, sorry, sorry. the grandmother, nor, do, nor do Doris or something? Out? I can't remember. I like remember. Doris, but yeah. I don't think that's right. Grandma Wakefield. I don't know. I don't think she gets a name. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Grandma Wakefield reveals that, I guess, that she actually is a, a stepmother herself to... Um, Lewis Wakefield. Lewis Apparently, Wakefield. Edward, Ned Wakefield, has an older brother a half brother so, right. named Lewis. Mm-hmm. And I guess Grandma Wakefield, when she first married, um, she says her husband's name. Oh my God. Is it Bob? <laughs> Bob. Grandpa yeah, Bob. Yeah, it's Bob. Oh, I had a Grandpa Bob. So when she ma- first married Grandpa Bob, he had a son, Lewis, and the grandma had a really hard time. Uh, or, or like they got along well with Lewis, but then it, then Lewis got older and grandma gave birth to Ned and there was a, a hard time. And it was like, eventually we came to be a family again. And I think of thought, came to think of them both as my sons again or for the first time. But that wasn't really until Lewis was in college right. and it took years to get there. Yes. Yeah, so she was saying that. I, too, was a wicked stepmother, or at least had wicked stepmother tendencies. Not really. She doesn't say that outright, but she says, I wasn't exactly a good mother to Lewis, at least initially. Which makes her whole American family comment a little bit uh, like pot calling the kettle black, grandma. Exactly. Yeah, she she definitely... Oh, she yeah, she doesn't know any, yeah, what's what's happened to the American family. I have no idea. (laughs) So Elizabeth, then, is all up in arms... About the fact that she, she's going to have to tell her parents that Emily is staying over. And her parents definitely won't let Emily stay unless they have informed Emily's parents where they are, where Emily is. But she's like, Emily's definitely not going to agree to call her parents, but we can't let her not stay here. So she takes this this problem to mom and dad and like... Basically, they all agree that 
Elizabeth should Elizabeth should be the one that calls the, the house and, <laughs> and like but Jessica is really against this. She calls her a rat. She calls her a rat and she never comes around. She's just like oh, you no. can't think on Elizabeth on Emily. Like which I can kind of agree <laughs> with Jessica on this one. Like I'm not sure how much it helps right now for for this but whatever. Apparently it does help. It's not good to do it behind her back. It seems weird that they right. can't at least convince her to inform her parents she doesn't even have to be the one to call but they they just say like we're gonna call mr meyer yeah and let him know because emily won't won't do it and i wish i could tell you listeners what it was that elizabeth said on this fateful phone call but alas it is yet another important conversation that this book skips right over and the next thing you know ron and karen are the meyer family shows up at the Wakefield's doorstep, and Karen has seen the light. She realizes she's been a terrible mother to to Emily this whole time. She was jealous. She confesses her jealousy. Yes. Um, It's like the spell is broken. Yes. Now she's not an evil witch anymore. Just flip that switch. So she gives Emily credit for... uh, Saving Carrie. Saving Carrie's life. She confesses her jealousy. She apologizes for being a bitch. She... We didn't even talk about the fact that at one point Ron says to Emily that I, Karen told me that you were you're very rude to her, and Emily's like, "Um, what now? Like when <laughs> did she tell you what she said to me?" Yeah. And that was the whole like mother conversation. Right. But I, I didn't so, say the part about apparently Karen's been telling Ron that Emily's been rude to her, which right. is really not the case. As Talking, we've seen those yeah. conversations. <laughs> She's protested against all these unfair rules. But yeah, I mean, like, Emily uh, appreciates the apology, and Karen fully takes all the responsibility, and I guess everything's perfect forever. All is forgiven. Everything works out. Yeah. It's a happy ending. And uh, then there's some kind of a party. Oh, because... Yes, the going right. away party for yeah. the grandparents. So Alice eventually, going back to the first thing we talked about, which is the B story, but the right. book brought it up first, too, so it's not just us. Blame the book. Yes. Um, Alice confesses to Ned that she's been feeling left out, and she knows it's silly, but she can't help her feelings, blah, blah, blah. And Ned tells the twins, like, hey, your mom is really feeling like you guys don't need her anymore, and it's making her sad. And they know that they need... They have, like, sense that something's weird, but not there's, giving a shit. There's really. a great conversation where Elizabeth is sort of noticing her mother is doing all these things and taking off work. And it's like, does this mother seem disappointed? And Jessica's like, I don't know what you're talking about. You're yeah. paranoid. Yeah. Like, why would mom... And Jessica has a point. Like, yeah. why would mom suddenly be all weird about whether or not we're a happy family? Um Ned, incidentally, uh, has a moment where he says of Alice, You're the best mother in the whole world, Alice Wickfield, and the best wife. And don't you forget it. Which, I'm not sure that I uh, yeah, not fully the best. agree. Also, oh, even earlier, uh, Ned, Mrs. Wickfield said seriously, leaning forward on her chair to look directly at him. Do you think I've been neglecting the girls lately? neglecting them, Mr. Wickfield burst out laughing. Alice, are you kidding? You're a wonderful mother. Which, I mean, I, he's not really one to say. Yeah. <laughs> There's, they, they both have been guilty of some neglect here and there. Yeah. But whatever, well, they're a wonderful, beautiful family, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the events of uh, Runaways, a couple books yeah. in the past now. <laughs> yeah. They forgot about that little episode. And compared to Karen and Ron, they're like parents of the century, so... Correct. Um, but yeah, anyway, 
the twins come up with a really brilliant plan. They're going to consult their mother about a going away party for the grandparents. And it's brilliant because it's something that they can ask their mom's advice and help about without making it obvious that they knew there was a problem. Right. Because it's still, like, about the grandparents. Yes. So they're able to help work pl- yeah, set up the party with their mother. Uh, Alice feels better and as doesn't feel as neglected. She gets to do something with her daughters for the first time in three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they, they throw the party. Uh, and, of course, they invite the Meyer family the to join Meyer them. Family. And then also, as special musical guests, the droids play in their dining room. Yeah. And when Emily walks in, there's her drum set. And uh, everything's all happy and wonderful. Yeah. So they have an awesome concert in the Wakefield household. Yeah. And the only thing that's amiss at all is that um, it involves going to the part of the podcast where we talk about boys. Ooh. Oh, 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 a beautiful boy. a beautiful boy. too many boys in this book that we haven't already talked about. There's a man whose name is Cliff Green, who is apparently Emily's drum teacher, but we don't find anything else about him other than that his name is Cliff Green. Uh, I love it, though, when uh, when characters get a full first and last name and then nothing else and they're never going to be important again. Um, but there is a boy that appears, a late-breaking appearance in uh, in the book, and his name is... Eddie Strong. Oh, such a good name. Eddie Strong was a sophomore at Sweet Valley High, and Elizabeth had gotten to know him at the Oracle. He was interested in graphics, and he had done some layouts for Mr. Collins. I don't know who Eddie Strong is. Okay, you no no, no details. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Yeah, but he he does provide some some hints for the the next story. But yeah, we we don't really get too much of Eddie, just that he has a cool name, and we know we at least hear that. Um, well, he delivers groceries. Right, he so delivers that's groceries. Why, so Elizabeth runs into him at the grocery store, and that's the whole reason that the book has her go to the grocery store. Right. She has to pick up milk while also picking up Emily or whatever. So, listeners, if you think way back to a book about Regina Morrow, you'll remember that Regina Morrow is in Switzerland getting her eyes, her, her ears. ears, her eyes. <laughs> her eyes are good. Her ears are getting better. Getting her uh, ears She's getting healed. special treatment. In Switzerland for her hearing. (laughs) Why did I say that? Anyway, yeah, but Eddie's like, when did Regina get back in town? And Elizabeth's like, what? And then she talks to Bruce Patman about it. Bruce is like, "Uh uh-uh. Like, I wouldn't know. If Regina's in the middle of her treatment, she's not back. And then there's this really terrific moment where Bruce um, picks up a cordless phone. Oh, yeah. While he's outside, after, just after swimming in the Olympic-sized pool. A minute later, he was back, a cordless phone in hand. My father's latest toy, Bruce explained and smiled, showing her the phone. Designed for people too lazy to budge. You can keep the phone next to you wherever you go. Don't let my sister find out about that, Elizabeth said. That's all we need. <laughs> oh, God. Uh-oh. And she- she has no idea what's coming for her. And uh, I don't know what's coming for Regina either. What's right. Is she there? Somebody answered the phone who says it's her aunt. That's weird. But Regina doesn't have an aunt. Yeah, uh-huh. her parents are both only children. 
Yeah, so it's something something fishy is going on. Yeah. Um, so she's going to have to, yeah, Elizabeth is going to have to investigate that. Uh, but I do, yeah, it is really interesting how they say, oh, yes, Bruce Patman has been dating Regina, and he's been uh, reformed for the better. I, I, I had some question marks there saying, hmm, I'm not sure about, <laughs> we'll see about that. We'll see. Can but a person really change? Can a Bruce Patman really change? We, we will have to see. Uh, there's one more thing that is a uh, that is related to boys, so that's good. There's mm-hmm. one more thing I'd like to say about boys, and I I, I just want to um, can I describe Dan to oh, you? Oh yes, because uh, we did get a a nice description of of Dan Scott. Dan was almost 17 with sun-streaked, baby fine brown hair and gray eyes that crinkled up at the corners when he smiled. He wasn't conventionally handsome, but Emily had always liked his looks. He had a wonderful smile too. She thought. Very shy and sweet. So, there's Dan. I thought you thought of me when you said that. <laughs> you do have some of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have gray eyes? I don't have those. The, your eyes crinkle up at the corners when you smile. That's true. As do most human beings. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but, um, you know what? You are very shy and sweet. <laughs> that's, that's, Yeah. <laughs> So, are you ready to divulge to me, Dan Gaspari, are you a Jessica or an Elizabeth? Well, you know, I'm also a Dan, but I would have to say I'm I'm an Elizabeth. Um, I mean, Jessica doesn't do anything bad this book, but we all know that she's up to no good. She's pretty good in this book. She's she, not that much of a factor, but she's pretty good. Yeah. No, but I mean, overall, yeah. I would say I'm more of Elizabeth. I'm happy to help a friend in need. As Elizabeth does. Uh, Not even really a friend. More of a mild acquaintance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Was there another character in the book that you related to? I mean, Um, you had uh, that Dan. Just Dan, basically. (laughs) I think that's a good character to relate to. No, I I really thought you picked the book for me just because of the the Dan Scott character. Let's say subconsciously. I probably did. did. There you go. And I knew that your middle name was Scott. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, maybe next time there's a book about a character named Dan. Right. I'm sure there'll be another Dan out there some sometime. Probably. Or maybe this Dan will come back. We'll see. And if this Dan comes back, I think this Dan should come back. Oh, I, let's, I'll hold you to that. Okay, now. okay. Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Um, listeners, uh, thank you so much for uh, writing reviews on uh, Apple Podcasts, aka iTunes, of the of the show. There are a few new ones, and oh my gosh, it just makes me so happy to read them. If you could just give a five star rating there, that's really helpful to the show. Tell your friends. Um, I love to hear about people. Uh, having told someone that they knew about the show and they got really excited. You never know who secretly is really interested in Sweet Valley exploits. Um, Recently, I found out that the student of one of my former guests listened to his episode and was like really, didn't know anything about Sweet Valley before, but was like, I can't believe these books exist. And that's like my dream come true. If current 19 year olds can hear about these books and be like, whoa, that was a thing and enjoy the conversation, then I feel like I've succeeded here. Um, Very nice. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sweet Valley or better yet on Instagram at Sweet Valley Diaries. And, uh, you know, send me an email, Sweet Valley Diaries at me.com. The website is sweetvalleydiaries.net. 
And uh, mostly has links to the podcast, but you can also read the reviews that I wrote of these books when I read them in the early 2000s. Um, you'll find that my opinions have not changed that much, but I don't really remember what I said back then, so who knows. Dan, thank you so much. Would you care to tease us for uh, book number 26? I'd love to. <clears throat> what has happened to Regina Morrow, and who is her mysterious aunt? Find out in Sweet Valley High number 26, Hostage. Ha ha! Exclamation point! <laughs> Exclamation point! Who's Emily Meyer? She's in our class at school, Jessica said. And I think she's having some problems at home, she added in a stage whisper. I guess I should whisper that. And I think she's having some problems at home, she added in a stage whisper. Oh dear, Grandma Wakefield said, looking distraught. That sort of thing upsets me so much. I just don't know what's happening to the American family these days. Parents don't have enough time for their children anymore, that's what it is, Grandpa Wakefield said. Alice, the stick is delicious, he added appreciatively. Did you add something special to it, or is it just the ear out here that makes it so good?